Yeah, yeah, and me again. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, as I said, you're going to be sick of me by the end of today. Uh, we are, this, this is about the most beautiful day we've had on a Sunday. We've had a lot of not beautiful days outside. This, this one about takes the cake as I look outside and, and see how beautiful it is. Uh, and we've been going at this uh, almost a year, uh, the, the setting up, uh, tearing down, putting plans together, putting teams together, uh, uh, going out into our community. Last Sunday, we were across the street at New Hope Housing Co-op, just trying to make connections and, uh, and praise God for everything that he's done um, this year. And, 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 and it's been an awesome year, and an awesome year to grow and learn and, and grow in our love of each other and our love for God. As well, it's been a really difficult year. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have happened that have been really, really difficult to walk through. Things that Nikki and I, when we jumped into church planning, we didn't even anticipate, and we had no idea what was coming. It's just been really, really difficult. And so there's this, there's the, there's this tension of we praise God for what he's done, and we also, there's been a lot of trials. And somehow we say still to God, praise, praise God for the trials that have come in our life. They've, they've strengthened us. We've grown. We've learned from those things. And those are, those, that's, a, that's a harder praise. You know, the good weeks are an easy praise. The bad weeks are a really difficult praise. Uh, but praise God uh, regardless for the week that has come and the trials that have come our way. With, so with that being said, because that's the reality of, of the situation, we praise God for what he has done, which have been amazing, but there's also been a lot of difficulties Pray for our leaders of our church because this week we're going to be gathering and just praying through and thinking through what does God want for our church? What, what, what direction do we need to go? What are the things that we need to focus on? Uh, are there things that we need to change? Could you, could you commit, uh, if you're a Restoration Church, to pray this week for us as we just uh, uh, meditate on the Lord, what he wants for our church? Could you just give me kind of a verbal yes? You're going to pray for us this week. Thank you so much. Um, and... Uh, because we need prayer, we need protection from God, because the reality as we, uh, as we walk through and advance through, especially in our Canadian culture, there's a lot going against the church nowadays, right? And those of you who have been in the church for a long time, you feel that, you know that. There's a lot going against the church. It's, it's, it's not easy to try and grow a church or to try and build a church or to try and reach people in the community. There's a lot of things going against us. Did you know this? Here's the reality of, of our context that we find ourselves in here in Cambridge, Ontario in the year 2019. This is, these are the difficulties that we face. Do you know what the fastest growing religious sector in Canada is? What's that? Yoga? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do you know the fastest growing religious sector in Canada is called the nuns? They don't believe in religion at all. Okay, so that's the fastest growing sector of religiosity. Those who have essentially said no to any established religion that exists. Okay, that's the fastest growing religious sector. Those who would put themselves, I don't fall into any of those categories. The reality is as well, the people that we talk to, the people that come into our church, even the, the, the temptations and trials that we face in our culture today, Jesus Christ is not our Lord and Savior in a city. Personal autonomy is, the, is our Lord and Savior. And the value of the suburb or the three kings of the suburb are, I just made that joke, 
The three kings of the suburb are ease, convenience, and luxury, which really go against the Christian message for what God has called us. And so uh, when these are the kings that we face, these are the things that we battle, the reality that we face, it's very difficult to march through those things and to try and speak into people's lives when that's the reality that we face in our city today. But you know this, that's actually not the concern that I have, what's happening out there. That's really not, not my concern. And as we pray and meet together as leaders, the concern should be for our church, not really what's happening out there. We, we need to be concerned about people's hearts, but all the negative, like it's, it's too hard to reach people. That's not our concern. The concern should be complacency in our church. That's the concern. As we, as we have a difficult reality that we have to meet, that we have to answer to, the concern should be complacency in our church. That The goal that we have for our church is to have a stable budget, to have a certain size, and to have some, some sort of, you know, uh, semblance of a, a neat and tidy church. And that's what we're happy with. That's what, that's what our goals are. That's what we should be concerned about, is complacency inside of our own church. Because there's a lot of healthy churches out there in Canada and the United States. J.D. Greer, uh, we, were at, we were at a conference called Exponential Church Planting Conference back in February. J.D. Greer is one of my favorite, uh, he's, he's kind of a big name pastor down in the States. He's probably, probably my, one of my favorites to listen to. And he doesn't, he's not, he's not proud about it, but his church is very active. He gives some of these stats pertaining to the church. Again, we can give stats happening in the world and that's not our concern, but he, these things should concern us. That 90% of active evangelicals, so those, that's how we would describe a lot of us in our church, those who are actively serving in church, uh, you know, they, they're active Christians. Evangelicals, so who have a, 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 a theology that we just sang about today. Though 90% of active evan- evangelicals have never shared their faith outside of their family. Never. 90%, yeah, 9 out of 10 active evangelicals in Canada and the United States have never shared their faith of Jesus Christ outside of their family. It's scary, right? And this, these are, that, that's what, that should concern us. And you know, maybe even more concerning at a church level is, is, is this, that 20% of churches are growing, would be considered growing. And it doesn't have to be fast, just stable growth. 20% are growing, and we praise God for that, but on the other hand, do you know how many are growing from actually reaching new people? So by conversion. Do you know how many? One. One percent of churches are actually growing, not by, you know, you know, people going to different churches, but by reaching new people. One percent of our churches are doing that. This should, if you're a Christian here today, this, these things should concern you. And, and how we live out our Christian faith in front of the world. And we can't, we, we would be naive to think, well, Restoration Church, we, we, we will never fall into these kind of things. That should be our concern. Not what's happening here, but what, what could happen in our church. The com- complacency that can, uh, that can develop in our church. And I believe we need a spiritual awakening. Like, that's what I'm praying for. More than like new models, more than new programs. I believe in my heart first, I need a spiritual awakening for my heart to break for the people that are in my community, for the neighbors that are around me, the people that I talk to at the coffee shop, that I would see them as Jesus sees them and my heart would break for those people. 
And my prayer is for that to happen for you as well. I think in our church we need a spiritual awakening for what church should actually be, for what our lives lived in front of the world should actually look like. And we call it, and, and there's been uh, uh, one, of our, one of our people, Colin Heat, and I'm picking him out. He just, when he joined our church, he says, like, you know, I just want to see revival. I just want to see revival. And whatever that looks like, I, I, I've heard, I've read about it in the past. I've read old books about revival. I've, I've seen blog posts. I've seen cool videos made about revival happens in cities. I've, I want to see that here in our city. And I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it yet. True revival happening, a spiritual awakening amongst God's people, and then changing of our neighborhoods and our cities in general to, 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 to serve God and be turned to Jesus Christ. That's the time to clap. Okay, so if you're going to clap. So what do we do? So what do we do? What's like, what's the method? What's the, what's the methodology? What's the program? And, uh, you know, you, you might be like, teach us, Aaron. Okay, so ready, here we go. Okay, there's no, just a, there's no silver bullet. Okay, churches have been looking for a silver bullet to be- beat this trend for a long time. There's no silver bullet. That all of a sudden we're going to introduce a new program. It's just like, everyone, like we're going to storm out of here and everyone's going to like lead the world. There's no silver bullet. Okay, but this quote was said by J.D. Greer to, uh, when I was listening to him as he, as he said this. He said this, the uh, French poet Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said this, if you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. See, when you long for the sea, your lack of knowledge won't hold you back for very long. You'll just get out there. You'll figure it out. See, I think the problem isn't that we haven't found the right program. It's that we don't, and if I'm honest with myself, I don't yearn to see lost people saved. And God's glory spread over this world. To build whatever ships are required to take us there. And that's why for the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at a series called Who's Your One? All about personal evangelism. We're going to be exploring, recovering the primacy of personal evangelism. When I say the word personal evangelism, I mean talking to people about Jesus, seeking to persuade them, right? It's not just telling about Jesus. It's seeking to persuade them that they should follow Jesus as well on a one-on-one basis, usually through a relationship, a conversation that you have. That's personal evangelism, okay? We're going to seek to recover the primacy of personal evangelism, that one-on-one relational, I am sharing with my friend, my coworker, my family, and, and about Jesus Christ. Because 90% of us have never done that. We're going to look at some uh, practical steps, understanding God's call and command for your life to do what you were always meant to, to do and to yearn. And do you want to see that? Yearn for this world? There's another person in, uh, in the Bible who yearned for his fellow people, his fellow family, his fellow co-workers to know and follow Jesus Christ. And that was the Apostle Paul. So turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. If you need a table of contents, Please feel free to do that. Look off, the, look, off, look off the person beside you. If you have a paper version of the Bible, awesome. If you have a phone version of the Bible, awesome. That's fine as long as it's the Bible. Romans 10, verse 1. You're going to see the Apostle Paul's yearning for his fellow people 
to know Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in verse 1. Brothers and brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's his people, that is that they may be saved. Simply, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is not that they would graduate from Harvard University, as I was saying yes, last week. My primary prayer for them is not that they would have a safe, happy life. What does it say? It's that they may be what? It's that they may be saved. See, the primacy of personal evangelism, that, that Paul yearns to see his, his kin, his, his family, his people saved and to know Jesus Christ. More than that, flip back to the previous, previous chapter, in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. When Paul begins this kind of, uh, as he's looking at his own people, and in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, he, said, he, he, even, he even puts more drama on it. He puts more emotion into it. He says this in, in chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the list. So I'm, I'm telling the truth is what he's saying. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I think to myself, like, when was the last time I had, like, unceasing anguish in my heart? For I could wish that I myself, this is what he said, this is crazy. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He actually says, I would rather, if I could, I would go to hell so that my family could know Jesus Christ. Like, that's, that's some unceasing anguish of heart. And I'm not sure if I've ever had that experience, if I'm completely honest with you. Like, yeah, heaven sounds good. I'm not sure if I'm willing to go to hell for my brothers and sisters around me, my neighbors around me. But Paul seems to, he, he is filled with so much desire and yearning to see people saved and to know Jesus Christ. He's willing to go to hell in order to do it, if he actually could. Now let me read actually from chapter 10, just so we get kind of the full context of what's going on. Let me read, I just read verse 1, but let me read uh, the whole thing down to verse 17. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then it says this in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's, that's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That's to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And I'm just going to read to there. So Paul has genuine concern for his people. And you might be wondering, who is, who is 
these people that he's referring to. Apostle Paul was a Jewish man, so he's referring to the Jewish people that they would be specifically be the ones to be saved. Those are the people that he was called to, and then later he was called to the Gentiles. But Paul's unceasing anguish about these people, the Jews, because they were God's special people. If you don't know the history of the Bible, the, the Jewish people were God's chosen special family, is what he calls them. He was a fa- like a father to them. They were his children. Through them, he, he gave them gifts. He gave them the, the patriarchs. He gave them the Bible. He gave them prophets. Uh, he, gave them, uh, uh, he gave them the law to live by. And through their example, through their witness, the, that the world might be saved. Okay? So these were God's special people rescued from other nations over from the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians. They were his people. No matter what they did, no matter how much they disappointed God, God always had a plan for them. He always loved his children. And Paul says, though, that they may be saved. So now we advance that these are God's chosen people and they're the ones who need to be saved. Back in verse 30 of, of chapter 9, it says, What shall we say? And the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, God's people had passion for religion. There's a lot of people who have passion for religion, or whether yoga or whatever it is, in life. And they think that a a lot of belief, a lot of passion in life is going to save them. Because if they work hard enough, if they sing loud enough, if they do something strong enough, they're going to save themselves. And God's going to be impressed by them. That's why Paul says in verse 2, it says, I bear them witness that they have zeal. They're passionate people. And Paul understood this. He was one of them. I had zeal for God as well. But what does it say? They have zeal for God, but what? Not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. See, the problem is not that they weren't passionate about their religion. They had reverence for scripture. They gathered in the temple on Saturdays and throughout the week. But not according to knowledge. And it seems like the temperature of your affection is only as good as the object that it's placed on. Guys, you can throw a really good date, but if your date doesn't come, like if it's not for anyone, if it's just so that you can tell your friends how awesome of a date was, but she doesn't show up, or there's no one actually there, You could, you know, you could buy the wine, the flowers, take her out, take take somebody out to a nice restaurant, and do all of these things, and 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 say, look at the affection that I have. I'm like, I'm like, remember that movie Hitch? I'm like, I'm like that guy who knows how to say, who knows how to talk, who knows what to do to uh, melt a woman's heart. But if there's no woman, I mean, what good is that affection, right? You might have zeal, but it's without an object. And so it seems like the temperature of your affection is only as good as the object that it's placed on. Since they were pursuing righteousness, they wanted to be right with God, but they did it by trying to, by attaining by their own works. It actually says in chapter 9, Jesus tripped them up, their self-righteousness. 
says the only way through to, to have communion with God, to, have right, to be in right standing with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I need to do all of these things so that God is pleased with me, it actually says you're going to trip over Jesus by your self-righteousness. That's not the way God operates. He says, those who are, have communion with me, those who are mine, those who are right before me, are right because of faith, not because of what they have done. So if you're tired of religion, I understand that. Because there was a time in my life that I thought I had to do X, Y, Z in order for God to like me. In order for God to even more so love me. And you know, there was this desperation there, there was that guilt but it also led to pride, thinking that I was better than other people because I was trying to be better than other people so that God would notice who I was. That's not how God operates. That's not the heart of God. Those who are in right standing with God are there because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we share, as we're talking about personal evangelism, the first thing I want to uh, say from this passage is this. And there, there's so many things we could go into the theology of this passage. We're just kind of sc- scraping the surface today. And we're going to be a little shorter today because I've gone, I've, I've gone too long the last few weeks. And so I'm pulling back. I'm making it up to you this week. Okay? So we're just going to kind of scrape the surface for this passage this week. Personal evangelism is about affection for Jesus. Personal evangelism is about affection for Jesus. When we were talking about this series and like, you know, what are we going to do for who's your one? How are we going to, uh, you know, how are we going to focus on evangelism? Uh, Brad Hooper spoke to me and said, you know, I I just want to make sure we're not guilting people to do it. You know, we're not just saying you have to do this or else God, you know, so that God will be pleased with our church. So we won't be motivated by guilt and shame for preaching the gospel. But the first thing we see in here is that actually to be in right standing with God requires, it, it's affection for Jesus. It's not, tra- it's, it's not doing things yourself. And so personal evangelism is about affection for Jesus. And Brad said, those who are motivated to share Jesus are simply those who are in love with Jesus. And so personal evangelism is about affection for Jesus. And here's my concern. When, when we talk about evangelism, we, we can do all the four steps of evangelism. What's the power to change thing? The four, the four spiritual laws of evangelism. You can be trained in those things. You can hand out the tracts. You can knock out on doors, be trained in apologetics, but actually not be in love with Jesus. You could be just trying to win people to Jesus without loving him yourself. And that's just not attractive. You know, I, I don't want that. That's why personal evangelism is about affection for Jesus. In fact, Jesus says he trips up that kind of self-righteousness. That just doesn't work with him. One of the, uh, one of the most convicting books that I've ever read, and you're going to hear quotes from books that I like. Okay? That's just, I'm not going to quote a book that I don't like. Okay? <laughs> one book that is awesome is C.S. C.S. Lewis's book called The Great Divorce. And if you've ever read The Great Divorce, it's about C.S. Lewis's uh, vision of what hell looks like, where God is not, there and there's a busload of people from hell who get bused to heaven okay and they experience what that's like the difference between hell and heaven where God is and little uh might ruin the story but guess what the people from hell don't like it because they have to be honest they have to submit they have to realize that there's a they can't be the king of their own life in heaven 
But one of the most convicting stories that is told in this is, is about a man named Dr. Archibald. And Dr. Archibald was this man who, who wrote Christian books. He was a Christian theologian, but had never taken his book seriously and never loved Jesus himself. He loved to debate theology. He could tell you all of the, you know, the end time stuff. He could tell you all of the, you know, you go on of Arminianism versus Calvinism all day long, but he never actually loved Jesus himself. He loved winning arguments. He loved winning people to his side. But he was doing what the Jews were practicing, the self-righteousness. And he never loved Jesus himself. C.S. Lewis says this quote, which I've always been very convicted about. It says this, There have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself. As if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who are so occupied in spreading Christianity that they, have ne- they, that they never have, have a thought to Christ. Next slide. Did you, never know, did you never know a lover of books that with all of his first editions and signed copies had lost the power to read them himself? Or an organizer of charities that lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest of snares. So that's why we want to make sure we are not promoting just, we're not going to guilt you into doing this. I'm not going to call everyone, don't worry, I'm not going to call everyone after the service, be like, knock on that door, and I'm going to stare you down (laughs) as I do, okay? We're not going to do that. We are firstly starting with this. We believe that you will share your faith, you will share Jesus with people if you have affection for Jesus. Because this is often how the church responds, responds to what happens in the world today. It's like, ah, people are going away from, you know, people are drifting away from Christendom, Christian morality, which, which we see a lot in the world. Here, here's, here's, here's how churches often respond, two ways, and it's not the right response. One of them is this, fundamentalism, okay? On one side, using my right hand, fundamentalism, which fundamentalism means it, that culture is an enemy and it's a threat to us. It's a movement away from the world. We're going to hide ourselves inside of our church. And we're going to kind of close our eyes to what's going on to the world. But it makes us blind to the world around us. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do. And so we're not following Jesus. So that's one way how we respond to the world. On the other hand, in fundamentalism, churches sometimes respond to what I'll call on the left hand, liberalism. Which means that cultural acceptance and relevance is the goal not glorifying God, cultural acceptance and relevance is the goal of our church. So the more people we can be cool with, <laughs> the better. But the problem is, it doesn't, this, this side creates a, a blind spot for culture, this spot creates a blind spot for God's word, what he actually claims in his word. So how do we move forward? Well, I would say this, we need an affectionate Christology a study of Jesus Christ. That's Chris, our Christology. And I've been to a lot of church planting conferences where they say everything flows from your missiology. I don't agree. I think everything flows from our Christology. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? Christology first. Our missiology, which is our belief in the mission of God, as Jesus says, as he sends us out to the world to make disciples, to baptize, to teach everything he's, com- everything he's commanded us. Our missiology and our ecclesiology, which just means the study of the church and who we are to be, can't be healthy without a, a healthy Christology. 
Our Christology comes from a, a lot of, it, it begins with our, our, even the Great Commission, what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse eight, 18 to 20. And it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the very ends of, end of the age. That's the great, that's what we are called to do. But do you know what comes before that that's so often not quoted in the Great Commission? It's the most important part of it. You know what it is? All authority has been given to me. See, we, we go with the Great Commission. We, 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 we are on mission with Jesus because he's the one telling us to do it. We love him. We want to please him. We want, we want to be with him. So our missiology, our mission to make disciples, to reach the world, is based on an affection for Jesus Christ. The mission doesn't matter if we don't start with the authority of Christ. And because Jesus commands these things, Dati Lewis says this in, in one of his books. He says, not only is it critical for us to recognize the authority of the one who gave us the Great Commission, we need to understand the gravity of the commission itself. We've taken the Great Commission and turned it into a mild suggestion. We act as if it's up to us to decide if we want to do what God has called us to do, as if we get to decide if we feel like being his witnesses. But if Jesus has commanded us, guys... We don't get the choice. Our Savior, the, the object of our affection, has told us what we need to do. See, if you make the date, guys, if you bring the wine, you bring the flowers, you make the date really good for your, for your affectionate one, and she, she, she asks you to do something, guess what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because she's the object of my affection. So it starts with Christ. And the one writing Romans 10 knew this more than anyone else. He had zeal for God, and it led to hatred for his fellow man. Until he came to know Jesus Christ and have zeal for Jesus Christ, it led to love for his fellow man. To be one of the greatest missionaries that's ever existed. Paul says this, as it says in Romans 10, if you've got it there, he says, for, this is a really important verse that we're not going to dig all into. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end, some Greek lesson for you. It's the word telos. So say telos. Perfect. That was lame. Say telos. Telos. When we think of the end, it means, well, we we abandon the law. We abandon what God has said about the law. But actually when it says Christ at the end, think of it as a race. Like it's the culmination. It's like the end. We've reached the end of the law. It's it's all supposed to be pointing to Jesus Christ. That's why it says in verse 5 to 10, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, and this is quoted right from the law, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart because if you confess with your mouth, that's straight from the law. And it's talking about all about observing the law. But now it's saying that those things are actually supposed to have pointed you to Jesus Christ. In fact, when we, started, when we start looking at the law, it's like, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, uh, don't lust. We think, how is that supposed to be leading us more to Jesus? It actually seems to be dragging us further away. But the point of the law was actually to be pointing to the end, the telos, the culmination, which is Jesus Christ. And because he has fulfilled the law, it says... It is near. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is now near because Jesus has done the work for you. 
And there's two ways that it's near in this, in this passage. Not only is it easily accessible because of what Jesus has done for you, not only easily accessible, but it's also equally accessible. It says, for the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, and I believe that's everyone, who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction now between people groups. The same Lord is Lord of all. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Because of the work that Jesus has done, not only is it easily accessible to, to be in right relationship with God, it's also equally accessible. So personal evangelism starts with an affection for Jesus, but personal evangelism is also about every person. Another really, really big verse that we, that we are to know in Acts 1 verse 8 says, the Holy, the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the world. Now in our culture, and that's that, what Paul is meaning there is to every person. You're to cross cultural lines. You're to cross language barriers. You're to reach every person with this gospel. It's no longer just for Jewish people. It's for, it's for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. No matter the background, no matter what they speak, no matter the skin color, they are, it is for everyone. And that would have been crazy for that early church because you know how long it takes to just get to Samaria? They, like, they're just, they're just walking. Brad, do you know that, how long did it take to get from Judea to I have no idea. A long time. Now you can just drive a car and be there pretty soon. You know how long it takes to, like, to go to the uttermost parts of the earth? Back in those days? And yet people did it. They would travel for years upon years reaching those people. And so there was this geographical distance because Jesus now has said, this gospel, this good news, my, myself... Is for every person, so therefore you have to break down these geographical barriers. Now in our day, a lot of those geographical barriers are broken down through an airplane, for one. But also through social media, you can, you can, you can, you can post something, people in you know, Papua New Guinea see it on their phone. Um, and so there's not that, you know, that that geographical barrier. But I would say this, in how we look at Acts 1 verse 8, there is still cultural barriers that we are to break in order to reach every person. Can I just illustrate it like this? If you can think of your concentric circles of relationship for what people are around you, and as we look, if we think about Acts 1 verse 8, if you look at your concentric circles of people, let, let's call it level one is your family. It doesn't take much effort to talk to your family, right? Well, Actually, some of it might, might take a lot of effort to talk to your family. Okay, so that's your family. But, you know, maybe dinner table or they're a phone call away. You don't really have to learn a different language for them. Maybe. Okay. You don't have to learn a different language. They're usually within reach. But that's kind of level one of the people that you, God has called you to reach. Level two is those who have church background. And as we get to know people in our community, there's a lot of people with some kind of church background. So when you talk to them, they know what church is, at least. They're not Christians, but they at least have like, oh yeah, I went to VBS when I was a little kid. You know, some people that we're, we're sharing the gospel, with, they're, they're, one of them has no church background. One actually was like, yeah, I, I, I went to a Lutheran Sunday school. I went to a Baptist VBS. I went to a Presbyterian Bible camp. Like they have like all the colors of, of, of church history all on them, but they're not Christian. He doesn't go to church. Okay, so there's those with church background. At least he knows the language. He knows the characters. He knows what you're talking about when you say Jesus, even though he doesn't know Jesus. 
That's level two. Okay, so family, level one. Church background, level two. But then it gets farther out from there. It takes more effort to reach people farther out from there. Because I'll call level three those who are indifferent. And let me just tell you this. Amongst especially younger people, people don't care about church. They don't really have a concept of even what church is. And those of you who grow up in church, it's like, I don't understand that at all. But there's a lot of people who, especially are younger, have no concept of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. They have no Bible. They've never opened a Bible in their life. I would call them the indifferent ones. It takes a lot more effort for, to, the, for, to reach those people because there, there's just no, there's no background. But it gets more than that. There's like level four with those who are not only indifferent but hostile to the church. You know, culturally hostile for things that have happened in the past. But like the LGBT crowd, it's hard to reach those who are in the LGBT crowd because there's, there's this hostility between the church and them. Or those who are atheists or those who are... Uh, uh, um, uh, those who are, are, are maybe have been abused by the church in the past. There, there's this hostility between them and the church. Right, that's level four. And then finally get level five. All in our city, by the way, all of these levels, all in our city, of those who have historical hostility with Christianity. They may be Jewish people. They might be Muslims. But Jesus calls us to go to all levels of those people. And guess what? They're not the ends of the earth. They're in our neighborhood, all five levels. Here's, here's the problem. The reason I'm telling you this and I'm thinking about those concentric circles of, of your reach and how you reach people. I don't think you can reach those people who are at the end, near the end, if we don't do personal, personal evangelism. The church, for the last, I don't know, 50 years or whatever it is, has tried to attract people into the church, put on things and say, you know, come into our church. They have slogans that say, you know, we're the cool church. We're not, this ain't your grandma's church, Right? Try to win people through that way. But here's, guess what? The only people coming to those services are what levels? One and two. To say this ain't your grandma's church, levels three, four, and five don't care. Like, they're still not coming to church. One and two are the only people that we really can reach if we, you know, no, I love Christmas, Christmas cantatas, but the only people that come are levels one and two. Family and those who have some type of church background. No one else is coming to those Christmas cantatas, likely. The only people coming to those Christmas cantatas are, are what? If someone actually goes personally and makes a relationship and invites them to come. No matter how many flyers we put out in this community or how many cool social media videos we put online, my fear is that it's only going to reach level one and two. It's not going to reach level three, four, and five. And so that's why Acts 1 verse 8 says, personal evangelism, actually the power of the people making a relationship with their coworkers, with the people at the coffee shop, no matter what their background is, that we are to reach and go beyond to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the other, other ends of the earth, all within our city. But levels three, four, and five aren't going to be reached unless we start personally evangelizing to them. Success isn't how many people we can get into our seats. Success might look like in our day, just one person considering Jesus. 
because you've had the courage to actually share Jesus with them. Personal evangelism is not, is, it starts with affection for Jesus. It's about every person. Lastly, personal evangelism is about giving the best gift possible. In chapter 10, it says this, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord and all. Those who are saved, it says, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. All the riches of God on those who choose to follow him. A hope for a future, a better life, a, a better mission in this world. A better relationship with your family or with the world, with him primarily. All the realities of salvation. And as a church, often what we do is we hoard, we find this treasure for ourselves. And we're like, wow, this is an awesome trailer. And then we bury it. And no one else is touching this treasure. But the treasure that we find, we are meant to give away to the world. So that they also can experience the riches on all who call upon him. We are not supposed to hoard the treasures all in our homes. Like one of those hoarders on the show, Hoarders. But we're supposed to invite people into our homes. Share the treasure with them. Expose the riches of what that looks like. And the treasure we give as as Paul's natural progression here is this, and I'll close with this in verse 14 and 15, because this is what we're going to be focusing on. This is really an introduction. This is what we're going to be focusing on for the next few weeks. Verse 14 and 15 says, that, that, that all sounds great. You know, personal evangelism starts with affection for Jesus. It's about every person, and it's also about giving the best gift possible. It says this in verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Guys, unless God does something like a miracle, like exposes a dream to them or, or whatever, they're not going to hear about Jesus unless we, unless we tell them. That's as simple as it gets. And what we're going to be looking about is that the power of the Holy Spirit works through us in order to reach our city. We've got to stop thinking that this is for pastors to do. You know, this is for the professionals to do. No, this is the call of every church member, as it says, can you put on the next slide? And actually, if you reverse engineer those verses, there's this sending. I'm gonna, we're going to look at that you are sent by God, each and every Christian. There's a preaching aspect. There's a hearing aspect. There's a believing aspect. And finally, a calling aspect. We're going to look at those things in depth as we go ahead these weeks. Let me close in prayer, and then, we're gonna, then, we're, then I'm going to close at the end. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who has called all of us to personally evangelize, and I pray that as a church, Restoration Church, that it would start with our affection for Jesus Christ. We love you. I confess, Lord, that my love for you often is flighty. It's based on the circumstances in my life, and it often doesn't translate into my heart melting for the world around me. Lord, I pray that, like the Apostle Paul, that we could say to ourselves, we could say to ourselves, our desire, our prayer for these people, our prayer for New Hope, our prayer for Southwood, our prayer for Cambridge, would be that they would be saved. First and foremost, that they would know Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would convict us and you would lead us as we go through this in the next few weeks together as a church. We love you and we pray for all these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing.